0: Well, mission's emphasis is uh, a yearly time when we as a church bring extra special focus to the third statement that we talk about so often here at State Road. We talk very often about being a people who love God and who love others and who love in action, and these three statements that we mention so often are part of our calling, our effort to live out our calling to win and make disciples, to take people who are far off from Jesus and help them grow into sturdy, fully committed followers of Jesus. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we find a passage of Scripture commonly called the Great Commission, which gives churches like ours our marching orders. Before ascending into heaven, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, that word disciple, uh, and this is a bit of review. Uh, For those of you who have been part of the conversation here at State Road for some time, but that word disciple is not a word used much outside of Christian circles. It's a word we find in the Bible quite a bit, and it means a fully committed follower, a sincere from the heart imitator of Jesus. I would just say an imitator of Jesus, but in our language that word imitator might mean like play acting or feigning something like that. So I, when, the, when the Bible uses the word disciple, it's talking about a sincere from the heart imitator, somebody who emulates the example of their person that they're following because it's good and excellent, and that's what they are striving to be. And the way we go about making disciples here at State Road, is by emphasizing those things which Jesus commanded in his teachings and modeled for us during the days of his earthly ministry. And we've summarized and boiled those things down into these three representative statements. A disciple of Jesus is someone who loves God, loves others, and loves inaction, action. And we did not invent these three statements. I did not read a book and just think that's the slickest thing ever. (laughs) I did read a book. It's called the Bible. (laughs) These three statements have been mined from a biblical ore. In the Great Commission, which I just read, Jesus charged disciples to, to teach new disciples all that he had commanded. And you might remember something that Jesus once said about the commands of God. In Matthew 22, He was posed a question, Jesus was. He was asked, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus himself said this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he makes this incredibly expansive, mind-blowing statement, really, when you understand it in its fullness. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. There it is. Love God and love others. All of God's revelation to mankind down through the ages, all of His commands, the law and the prophets, all of it can be summed up in these three representative ideas. And you might say, well, I didn't hear love in action in there. But uh, I think if you give a fair reading of the Bible, you cannot come away with any other idea. Biblical love is always active. It's never just a feeling or words. And in fact, God in His Word says that quite explicitly. 1 John 3.18, "...let us not love in word or de- or talk, but in deed and in truth." The expression of a biblical love is an active one. And we see this in the greatest example of love we were ever given, which is the cross." That Jesus didn't just throw words at a fallen earth or feel something toward us from afar. He came to us and took our place on the cross. God's love for us was an active one. And so we come to this time once a year during missions emphasis time, and we talk in an extra special pointed way about love in action. This last and third statement. And the thing we have to say is this... um, there is sometimes a thin line in practice between love and action and turning your church into a religious treadmill, <laughs> where we're just busy. Uh, busyness is not what we're after. There is a big difference between being a servant and just filling your days with lots of stuff. And I think a lot of churches fall into this trap where um, we just add layers and layers and layers of complexity onto church life all in the name of trying to do stuff. I um, come from the great state of Vermont, and in Vermont, it's one of the few remaining states where they still have a citizen legislature. So by constitution, for the majority of the year, about half the year, they send the legislature home. And the reason why the state of Vermont does that is because they reason if the legislature's there, they're gonna feel like they have to justify their existence. And they're just gonna pass laws. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, so, they give them a short time frame, show up, do your business, and then go home. I think there's some wisdom in that. Now, you might have a view of Vermont and their politics. That's all aside. That's, this is an ancient thing going back to the state's beginnings. But there's some wisdom in that, isn't there? I mean, people get together. All of a sudden, we feel like we have to justify our existence. We'll just add layers and layers and layers and layers and layers of stuff. We're not talking about busyness. We're talking about Living out our faith and love in a way that finds meaningful, practical expression. And this morning, uh, as we give some thought to love in action, I want to draw your attention to a verse that is uh, just a wonderfully hopeful verse for Christians, for Christian servants, for people who are living out this third statement, love in action. It's 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. It says, "Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain." Uh, Paul's point here is that the hope of the resurrection makes all the efforts and sacrifices in the Lord's work worthwhile. No work, no nothing done in His name is wasted in light of eternal glory and reward. Let's let's just really quickly walk through this verse. Well, I say really quickly. How much time? Okay, we're good. He begins by saying, therefore. Uh, This is why I mentioned the resurrection. Uh, This comes at the very end of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, which if you've been in a pew for a long time, maybe you've attended a lot of Easter services, this is a place where pastors tend to hang out on Resurrection Sunday, Easter, because it's all about the hope of the resurrection. And he, f- in, he wraps up this master class in the hope of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 with this summary verse, therefore. In other words, all of the stuff I just said about the resurrection, I am loading all of that here into this word, therefore, because all of that's true, because Jesus was raised bodily from the grave, because all of our, pen, all of our hopes are pinned to that truth, Therefore my beloved brothers and here in the word beloved we see something not only of Paul's heart toward his brothers and sisters in the in the in the Corinthian church but I think also God's heart heart toward us but that big therefore is this it points back to this truth the words that come immediately before this verse death is swallowed up in victory O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, therefore. And then he says, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, I'm willing to bet (laughs) that all of us, at one time or another, have undertaken a project with great enthusiasm that later fizzled out. I remember one time uh, in the days leading up to Christmas, I came to my mom and dad and I told them that I had decided I was going to become a harmonica player. And uh, my mom and dad knew me better than I knew myself. (laughs) And they at, all at once looked skeptical and relieved. Relieved because that's about as cheap an instrument as I could attach my dreams to, right? <laughs> go, go for it. Knock yourself out. I'll, we'll get you a harmonica. <laughs> they were just relieved. I didn't say, I want to be a master pianist. That's expensive. No, but I, there was a st- uh, harmonica stuck in my stof- stuck, st- stuck in my stocking. That's correct English. Okay. Guys, I do not play the harmonica. (laughs) That's the one. I I fiddled with it for a while. And then later, when I first came to pastor a church in Florida, a man came to me and asked if I wanted piano lessons. And I was very excited. I said, man, I I think I would like that. Absolutely. We met for weeks. Uh, Guys, I do not play the piano. (laughs) I, (laughs) I don't play the piano at all. I'm willing to bet that all of us, at one time or another, have gone on a diet, we've started a hobby, we've picked up a musical instrument, we've begun something with great enthusiasm that later just kind of fizzled out. The joy faded, we've moved on, our affections have shifted to other things, and I'm not just talking about musical instruments or going on a diet. Can this happen in the Christian life too? Many of us can remember those days when we first came to a saving knowledge of Jesus. When we were walking more closely with Him and how precious were His promises then. What joy we found in His presence and in worshiping among His people. What a delight it was to show up and use our gifts in service to the church And to be a blessing and a help to those in the community as as a representative of Jesus. Do you remember those times when you sought God's Word like a hungry person turns to food? Maybe at one time you felt strong in the Lord as you worshipped and witnessed and as you served and pursued personal righteousness. But now, maybe you've grown weary of doing good. It seems like there's little reward in it. The inner power and joy have seeped away, and you're left with a worship that sometimes is more a movement of the lips than of the heart. You listen to God's word, but you don't do it all the time. You're not terribly concerned about it. The enthusiasm you once felt is gone, and in the place of desire is grim duty. There's no fire, there's no delight, no gas in the tank. You've lost heart. Now, some of us recognize what I just said. We're fickle. We're human beings. We're up and we're down. We go through seasons. We draw near. We draw away. Aren't you glad for the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever? (laughs) And that when God in His Word encourages us to attach our hope to anything, it is the immovable rock of Jesus not our resume of works or the constancy of our devotion. None of that is what impresses God or what he encourages us to attach our hope to. The sum total of our hope is the broken body, the spilled blood. Jesus is all we have to boast in. But here it says this, Therefore, in light of what Jesus has done, in light of the resurrection hope, be immovable, steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, to somebody who's abandoned the harmonica and piano lessons and several diets, <laughs> I don't like this word, immovable and steadfast and abounding. I can abound in ice cream eating. I can abound in lots of other ways. But I don't abound sometimes in what, I'm being, in what he's saying here. But then we come to this, it says, therefore, and knowing, and sandwiched in between there are those words, Im- immovable, steadfast, abounding in good works, therefore, and then it says knowing, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Uh, I have a hard time reading that word vain without thinking about another book of the Bible, which is Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes begins famously with the words, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then just a few words later, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. This word vanity in the original Hebrew means something like meaningless, empty, or futile. The book goes on to explore many things that people spend their lives pouring themselves into, all in the pursuit of finding meaning and satisfaction in life. And really, Ecclesiastes is a pretty dark book. It's full of existential dread. And the author, King Solomon, writes with a spirit that is heavy with cynicism. He looks around and he sees that the end of the wise and the foolish person is precisely the same. The hamburger and fries and, yes, biggie-size-me maker of bad decisions and the vegan who starts every day with a four-mile run, they both die. This is Solomon's conclusion. Death comes to both the wise and the fool and finds them both equal when it comes. What's the point? You could basically wrap up the whole book of Ecclesiastes, at least the first three-quarters of it, with what's the point. (laughs) That's basically what he's saying over and over and over again. The pursuit of wise living is vanity, says Solomon. Ultimately, it gets you nowhere. Solomon tries pleasure, too. He tries to lose himself in laughter, song, partying, entertainment. He tries drinking. He amasses things. He builds houses. He plants vineyards. He pours himself into professional achievement. He's a king. But ultimately he concludes that power, authority, accolades, all the attainments that goes with his position, it'll all just be swept away and nullified by the inevitable and inescapable event of his own death. It's all vanity. He repeats it again and again and again. Life is empty, meaningless, and futile. I hope you didn't come here for a happy message this morning. <laughs> it's going to come out to a happier place. Don't worry. Some of you look a little worried. Now, here at the beginning of Mission's Emphasis, this annual time, when we as a church focus on being a people who love in action, and as Andrew shared in his message last week, consider others. Hear these words of Solomon as he thinks about action in various sorts, toil, service. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Hated it all. Seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun for all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation, even in the night, his heart does not rest, this also is vanity. Now all this talk of vain toil, empty, futile and meaningless efforts, is very, very relevant to us this morning as we talk about the work of the church: love and action. Solomon concluded that all is vanity. For a couple of very simple reasons. And primary on his list is that no matter what you do or build or amass, no matter how you impact people, no matter, death will eventually come for you and rob you of all your attainments. This is his argument, one of his arguments. In Ecclesiastes 2, 14 through 15, Solomon is talking about the differences between a wise and foolish person, and then he says this, And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And that event he's talking about is death. Death. What's the point of living with wisdom if we end up dying just the same? This is Solomon's reasoning throughout. Why work hard? Why live right? Why deny yourself? Why give? Why be steadfast, immovable, and abounding in good works? But then in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul answers Solomon. Death is swallowed up in victory. Therefore, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, death does not rob you, death does not take it away. The operative words there are in the Lord. Apart from those three words, all the dark pessimism and existential dread of Solomon is 100% spot on. You really have to ask a person who does not have a faith in Jesus, what exactly are you living for? What exactly is the great central aim of your life? What exactly is the north star around which you are guiding all the days you have under the sun? What is it you hope to obtain? I'm willing to bet that whatever answer they give finds its beginning and end in this blip of a life. They might say, well, I really believe in hard work, just how I was raised. My family is the most important thing for me. That's what provides a lot of meaning and joy and satisfaction. I just want to leave something for the folks who come after me. They're going to struggle to come up with an answer, but I can promise you this, whatever answer they do give, Solomon would shake his head and say, vanity, it's vain, it's empty, It's ultimately an unsatisfying answer. In Hebrews 10, 34 through 35, the author of Hebrews is telling about the early church and how they were suffering a horrible persecution and even had their businesses seized by the state. And then it says this, that they joyfully accepted the seizing, the plundering of their property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Better and abiding, better and abiding, something that is higher, more excellent, and it's longer lasting than the reward that you would have gotten from a temporary business. Brothers and sisters, so many human beings are building their lives on the wrong side of the border with eternity. And it's ruinous. It's hard to watch. If you go to the Holy Land today, uh, you will see evidence of the great King Herod. Buildings, aqueducts, palaces, fortresses. Uh, He left a great physical imprint on the land that is still visible today. You will see no edifices constructed by Jesus. Everything Herod lived for, vanity. (laughs) Everything. He's Herod the Great. And you look at his life, and it's pathetic, really. His attainments, his achievements in life might be the envy of anyone who's power-hungry, money-hungry, glory-hungry. But in the final analysis, Solomon looks at this man, and he goes... That was all a chasing after the wind. He tried to grab onto a mirage. And everything he lived for had its beginning and end in this blip of a life. And stretching out beyond that life is the great yawning chasm of eternity. He built on the wrong side of the border with eternity. And he's to be pitied. And Solomon's looking at all these people building skyscrapers on the wrong side of the border. And he's going, what are they doing? It's vanity. It's all a chasing after the wind. What a waste. But then these words uh, emerge into human consciousness like light coming into a dark place. That in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Uh, In the midweek email, I shared the story of how in the Revolutionary War, a young teacher and spy for the Continental Army named Nathan Hale was caught by the British for spying, and he was subsequently hung. Uh, His last words were, My only regret is that I have but one life to give for my country. I collect last words because I have very macabre hobbies. (laughs) I keep something on my computer where when I find a great last word, I stick it in there. Uh, and really, that obsession with great last words began when I was a boy and I encountered Nathan Hale's clutch, last words moment. I mean, when it comes my time, just give me words half as cool as what he said. My only regret is that I have but one life to give for my country. How great. And I remember reading those as a boy and just thinking, man, that is courage. That is commitment. That's clutch, Right? I also remember thinking that what a waste it would have been for him if to die like that if in the end the war had been lost. I'm willing to bet, man, I'll tell you what, if the British had won, we would, Benedict Arnold is who'd be celebrated in our history books, and Nathan Hale would be less than a footnote, utterly, completely forgotten, an irrelevant person. My point is this. As we embark into missions emphasis month here at State Road, you should know who's going to be irrelevant and what will be celebrated in eternity. Guys, aside is going to win and in fact already has. It's over. This great cosmic battle in which the world is engaged really ended decisively on a hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Uh, The battle we're engaged in is more like the Battle of New Orleans in the War of 1812, which actually happened after the war was ended by treaty. The armies didn't know that because word hadn't reached them in the field. There was no Gmail back then. So it took a while to get them word. And so the Battle of New Orleans happened actually after the United States and Britain had signed a peace agreement. And that's what's happened here. Uh, We are still engaged in a battle that has already been won decisively on that cross. And as we embark into this time of missions emphasis, you need to know that nothing you do In support of the great cause in which the church is invested will be wasted, because victory is guaranteed. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In Matthew 6, 19 through 20, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. If the British had won, Nathan Hale would be unknown to us, but they didn't. So his sacrifice is celebrated generations afterwards. I encountered that in a U.S. history book. If Satan were to win this great cosmic battle, then whatever sacrifices you have made for the advance of the kingdom would be vanity. Wasted, forgotten. But because of the resurrection, because of the coming victory, which is guaranteed, we are bold and generous. Your labor is not in vain. Your giving is not in vain. Your suffering and sacrifice and prayers are not in vain because Jesus wins. And there is a way to live that's vain, empty, futile, meaningless. But nobody who spends their life in support of the kingdom and its kingdom objectives, is wasting anything." It's not even vain if it's met with no earthly reward. A great example of this is found in Hebrews 11, uh, where it says this, speaking about, uh, this is the, in the Bible, Hebrews 11 is called the uh, Hall of Fame of Faith, sometimes people call it that, and one of the people that's celebrated in there is Abraham and Sarah. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. And then here's the verse I really want you to see, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, seen and greeted them from afar, they received what they didn't receive. (laughs) Uh, Abraham, for his trouble, never had a settled place of residence. He lived in tents. Uh, He was promised an inheritance that he never got, not during the days of his earthly sojourning. He was promised a land that would be for him and his descendants always. He was promised descendants as numerable as, what did it say, He sand by the seashore. And yet he waited well until he was even past an octogenarian, until he even had his first child. And and I think this is the experience of so many Christians uh, who feel that their labor is in vain. They are struggling. They're working hard, seeing very little fruit, pouring themselves into it. And I want you to know that with God, all the joy is not in the gift, but in the giving. <laughs> and that's true. He is more delighted when you do something properly motivated than He is that, it come, that something come of it, <laughs> The the, the giving of yourself to that is what brings God delight. And it may be that God has called you out into some small and unnoticed ministry. Maybe you're a prayer, and nobody sitting around you knows the hours you devote to prayer. Maybe it's something else. Maybe even those sitting around you don't even recognize what you do as a ministry. But in the privacy of your heart, where it's just you and God, you know the missionary zeal you attach to that activity. You know how you enter into it with kingdom consciousness and in conversation with God throughout. But maybe little seems to be happening, and you're beginning to wonder whether your efforts have been all in vain, or maybe you've seen very little fruit, or even as it's sometimes the case... There has been no fruit at all that you can see. Perhaps you're a parent who raised your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but they have since wandered away from God and His people. You watch as they succumb to the enormous pressures of the world, and you think, was it all in vain? (laughs) Was it all vain to tell them the Bible stories? Was it all vain? to bring them among God's people? Was it all wasted? Why should you labor on when you feel you cannot even see that any good thing has come of it? Not only has no good come of it, but it has actually made your life difficult and painful at times. Or, Or maybe you're old and alone, and you wonder to yourself, do you still have a place in the Lord's service? Are you discouraged that now when your energy is gone, there is nothing left for you to do for Christ. But here, Paul tells us through the inspired pen, through the Holy Spirit inspired words from our very God, that your labor is not in vain. Jesus tells us what happens when a person fails to see that their labors in the Lord are never wasted. He tells the story of the wicked servant who hid his talent in the ground until his master returns. He came to believe that his master was a hard man and that his labor would be in vain. He reasons that it's not worth the effort. And that is a temptation many of us know. Is it really worth it? I want you to know that's the, an- that's the question of Solomon, not the answer of Paul. What's the point? 1 Corinthians 15, 58 answers that question decisively. Our labor is never in vain. It is never hollow and empty in the Lord. And this is a wonderful encouragement as we come into this time of mission's emphasis. Uh, Let me pray. And as I pray, I would ask if the deacons would come forward. We're going to be taking the Lord's Supper together. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, with one heart thank you Fulfilling our lives with such wonderful purpose. And Father, we remember uh, the words in 1 Peter 5.4 that when the chief shepherd appears, he will bring with him the unfading crown of glory. God, there, there is a day of reward coming. There is a day when all those who joyfully receive the plundering of their property will enter into a better and an abiding possession, that crew in Hebrews 10. Father, they pin their their hopes to something better and abiding. And Father, the temptation is great to build on this side of the border with eternity. But Father, we have heard in your word this morning that it is better to send it on to a place where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. Whatever is laid up in that account, God, is not laid up in vain. And so, Father, help us to be bold. Help us to be generous. Help us to give of ourselves in an open-handed way to the work of the kingdom But, Father, help us avoid the trap of making our church into a religious treadmill. Father, I pray that you would lead us by our desires into wonderful things. Give us opportunities, Lord, this week. Surprise us this week with opportunities to be like a living reminder of who you are somewhere. Give us opportunities to ease another's burden. Give us opportunities, God, to use our gifts. God, confront us and challenge us to step outside of our comfort zone into different areas of service. Father, you are the God whose thoughts are not our thoughts and whose ways are not our ways. That's the words of Isaiah 55. And so, Father, we ask you to surprise us this week. Show up with words and thoughts and ways of doing things that are new to us, challenging to us. God, we don't want to ask you to bless our little things that we're doing. God, draw us into the very heart of what you're up to. God, help us to jump into the river of your blessings and go out from here, God, with our, uh, with our ears to the ground, eager, Lord, to be a blessing to some people and to represent you well in all those areas of our lives where you'll send us this week. Knowing as we do, God, that our labor for you is not in vain, but it is possible to waste our lives. Thank you, Lord, for that word. In Jesus' name, amen.